I was just checking with Carlos to make sure that it didn't have another number and I was standing up here awkwardly. It's so good. I've done that before. Uh, it's so good to be here with you and have this opportunity uh, to, to preach. I can't believe it's been uh, really over 20 years since I first uh, became uh, your interim pastor. It's been only, only 15 years since I ended, uh, but uh, as a little joke there. Uh, you, no, it was about 20, 22 months, something like that, and I, uh, Sue and I just never had in all of our uh, lives a more wonderful experience uh, with the church than we did with Tallywood. We made so many friends here, lifelong friends, and have had so many wonderful experiences down uh, through the years, and it is just a joy and a, and a blessing to be with you today. I'm so thankful to Dwayne for inviting me, and uh, so I'll uh, try to keep the pressure on him every now and then to uh, invite me back. Thank, thank you, though, for, uh, for the warm greeting that uh, Sue and I have had this morning. I've got a little bit of a feeling, a little bit of a dilemma because I know this service is a little more compressed. At least that's what I've been told. Maybe they tell me that all the time. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, as, as you know, I'm quite capable of preaching very long sermons. I had, uh, this sermon is a 60 minute sermon. And last night on, on Saturday night, I, I really worked hard, compressed it down to 40 minutes and uh, so now I know this morning is uh, more like 2025, something like that. So I, I asked Sue last night uh, if she had uh, any, any thoughts for me, you know, um, and, and she said, well, honey, yeah, she did have some thoughts about how to compress it. And she said, uh, I think if you would really, you know, cut it down to these essentials, you could get it down to about 12 minutes. And uh, she, she has... You know, people have often told Sue that she, uh, she reminds them of Laura Bush, and uh, I think it's quite a compliment to Laura Bush myself, uh, but, uh, the, but I'll bet Laura never said that to George, that's all I can, that's all I can say. It is wonderful to be with you, and I, I want to um, I do a, um, a, um, a message that... In, in some ways, it's focused in 1 Corinthians 15 because it's a, it's a great text for the Sundays that follow Easter. Here we are in the season of the year, uh, which refers to the ascension of our Lord. Uh, his um, Ascension Thursday, of course, is uh, 40 days uh, after Easter, and this is uh, that, that very uh, season of the year where we think about the post-Easter resurrection appearances of Jesus and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father and then of course uh, 10 days after Ascension Thursday is is Pentecost uh, Sunday. Uh, But there is a reference in 1 Corinthians 15 which of course is the great resurrection uh, passage in the New Testament. Uh, There is a reference to uh, the ascension of Jesus although it's not uh, precisely called uh, uh, ascension but it's a reference to what the ascension means and that is to the to the coronation of Jesus, the enthronement of Jesus at the right hand of God. It is an accession to the throne when, when he receives uh, dominion. It's beautifully described in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5 when, when, uh, the, when the, the, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, appears before the throne of God and is able to take the book out of the hand of him who sits upon the throne and all of heaven rejoices. And uh, that is the, the enthronement of Christ, all the creatures around the throne rejoice. It uh, corresponds in that powerful symbolic language in Revelation 5 to, uh, 
to, of course, uh, what happens in, uh, in Acts 1 when Jesus is taken up into heaven. And you have various places in the New Testament, the very first Christian sermon, for example, which refer to the enthronement of Jesus. Peter says in that very first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2 that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so this, this exaltation of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the enthronement of Jesus is, is uh, a reference to the fact that now he has uh, been made Lord of the universe. He rules and reigns. And Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, when he says in verse 25, for he must reign. This is the ascension of Christ who's now enthroned. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the reference now is to Christ, the Lord, who in the power of the Spirit is working through his church. And uh, they, uh, he is working uh, to conquer fully and finally and completely all the powers of darkness. And so the, the, uh, the church is in this battle, is in this conflict to conquer uh, through the preaching of the gospel, through the gifts of the Spirit, to, to conquer the powers of darkness, to extend the frontiers and boundaries of the kingdom of God. We are told, of course, that we will not do it in our power, uh, thus the gift of the Spirit and the, and the gifts of the Spirit. And we're also told that in the end, uh, it is very likely when the Son of Man comes, Jesus said on one occasion, uh, will he even find faith on the earth? So there seems to be simultaneously this pressing forward, this preaching of the gospel, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he says. But on the other hand, there, there is this uh, increase, this, uh, this magnification of the powers of darkness until, for example, the book of Revelation seems to tell us that in the end, there is this great conflict that can only be resolved when the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is uh, the, uh, the Lamb of God who was slain, whose, uh, whose robe has been dipped in blood, who, uh, who's, from whose mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword, when he comes riding uh, in power and might and majesty, only he can finally conquer the kings of the earth and, and the first beast, uh, Satan, and the first beast and the second beast, and, and subjugate all things finally and fully uh, and completely to himself. Uh, but this, this is um, this season of the year, and in this particular passage, there, this is one of the key moments in, in, in the Christian calendar, in Christian history, in human history, when the uh, crucified, resurrected uh, Son of God is now taken up after that 40-day period and ascends uh, to the right hand of God the Father from, where he, uh, from which position he must rule and reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God has a, a story. And when I use the word story, I'm not referring to something mythological uh, or something uh, uh, merely uh, symbolic, although there are always, can always be myths and symbols and metaphors and, and riddles and so on. We're referring to things that are real, We're referring to, to things that have truly happened. And so, uh, so we, we, have, uh, we have God's story. And there is a macro story given in scripture that is, is sometimes easy to miss, but it's, it, it matters that we understand what this story is. It matters that we appreciate uh, who we are as characters within uh, the story of God. Uh, he gives different people uh, different gifts. He places us within uh, his church and, and the church within his story in strategic ways. So we don't get to pick which part we play, but we are told some, some very uh, clear and general things as to what we're to do between now, particularly between Easter, uh, the ascension of our Lord, where 
where he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, by the way, to be defeated, we're told here, is death uh, and, and the, the, the coming of Christ when, when that last enemy is defeated. It matters that you understand the, the storyline, and I want to talk uh, briefly this morning about the storyline. Imagine uh, for a moment that you're, you're, uh, you've gone to uh, see Macbeth played out, that great uh, Shakespearean uh, uh, tragedy, and, uh, and in the moment of angst when Macbeth is, uh, is uh, feeling enormously this guilt and this grief, as, as said of him, Macbeth uh, has murdered sleep. He cannot sleep. His conscience is racking him, and he he sees uh, visions. He's he's murdered uh, the king along with uh, his uh, pretty uh, ruthless partner, his his wife. And uh, what if in that moment of angst, in the, one of the high moments of the play, somebody walks in and starts reciting? An actor comes in and recites the lines uh, from Hamlet: "To be or not to be." That is the question. Or, alas, holding a skull. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. Well, I mean, it's, the lines are right. It's a legitimate character, but, you know, it's in the wrong story. And it makes a, it makes a difference. If, if we don't know the story, we're liable to, to say the wrong lines and, and act out the wrong part. Or I'll give you an even more outrageous example. What if it's Romeo and Juliet and we're in either the, one of the great balcony uh, scenes or, or it could even, who knows, it could even be the, the uh, I hope I'm not ruining the story for anybody, but sort of the suicide scenes uh, at the end. And, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, children's... Uh, Donald Duck walks out onto the stage. I mean, it's, I mean, Donald Duck's a nice character. It's an interesting character. He's got three nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and he's got, he's got Uncle Scrooge and, uh, you know, all kinds of, and, and he's got a dog named Goofy. I've often wondered, Goofy has a dog named Pluto. I, anyway, it's another story. Uh, but but it, it's the wrong, it, you know, it's, it's a good character, in his own world, but it's the wrong story. It just doesn't, doesn't fit. It's important for us to know the story. This, God's story, in, in summary, goes, goes something like this. The world's story, I'll try to parallel the two stories. The world's story is this, that in, in a random way, and the key word is random, in a random way, certain chemical electrical forces uh, come about and life sort of starts. Scriptures say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you know, we, we, we can leave aside all the questions of mechanisms and so on as to, as to how the creation takes place, but, but there's a big difference here. Something that's random, has no purpose, has no meaning, and there is no singular power uh, behind the coming into being of this stuff. Random, electrochemical versus uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Purpose, meaning, uh, the living God, the creator God. Well, uh, the world's story is all this stuff somehow just sort of happened, and then somehow sort of these uh, out of the uh, ooh and, and, and goo, uh, sort of these, these other things started to happen, uh, creatures uh, sort of like us. And, uh, but these creatures have slowly gotten better and better. Slowly gotten better and better. And they're still getting better and better. In fact, today, now after who knows how many years, you know, uh, thousands, millions, uh, these creatures have slowly gotten better and better. And now when they have problems, 
The problems, we can sort of deal with these problems. Um, therapy. Psychology in the great 20th century, my apologies to all Christian psychologists here, I'm not referring to you, but in the 20th century, by and large, psychology has been regarded as a substitute for religion in, in, in many, many circles. And so, so, you know, sort of therapy or a 12-step plan. Got a problem? We've got a 12-step plan for you. Want to write a book, sell a book? Say something like seven steps to or nine steps to or 12 steps to. And, you know, that's, that's kind of our, our therapy. And then in the end, what happens? Well, you go through various phases of life. You know, you sort of, you sort of grow. And we'll, we've got another psychology book or two. Uh, you know, Dr. Spock can tell you how to raise your children and uh, pick which Dr. Spock you want. I don't care. Star Trek, Benjamin Spock, either one of them. Uh, you, you, can, you just sort of raise your children. They, they, they rather develop somehow. Uh, don't, don't, don't hurt their little psyches though. You know, be, don't, don't, don't create any traumas for them and, uh, and let life sort of move along. And they'll go, and then, and then we go through these various stages. Well, we go through, you know, those teenage years and then we go through all these stages of life. We, we want an education, a good thing by the way, and we want an education and we want, uh, you know, we want to get married perhaps, and then we want our own children. And then we keep going through life and go through these various phases and we try to stack up resources and then we retire and we want to travel and that's, and then we die. Well, we're not going to talk about that. Don't talk about that. Uh, of course, last I checked, the percentage of those who experience death is holding pretty close to 100 but don't talk about it. And in the end, well, in the end, oh, we've got various theories about what happens then. The worms eat you. Or maybe you'll be sort of re something. you kind of come back as something else. Or you'll be a drop in a great ocean. Or you'll just sort of be a mist carried along. Well, the biblical story is very different. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creatures that he created, particularly and specifically, rebelled against him. They didn't need therapy. Uh, they, they, it, it's not that somehow they had this, this terrible weakness. No, they rebelled. And whatever you think about the story in, in Genesis, you can treat it metaphorically however you want. But something real happens. The biblical account is that, is that God creates Adam and Eve rebel. And thus God has to cast them out of this paradise. And an angel is set there at the uh, east of Eden and, and this paradise is guarded and no one can enter this paradise again. But after various uh, iterations, we get some terrible stories about Cain and Abel and about, uh, about Lamech uh, and about Noah uh, and the flood and the, and the sons of God go into the daughters of men and so on. Uh, we get the Tower of Babel. But finally, God now, it's very clear that, that God's strategy for how to restore the blessings that he put on Adam and Eve and the, the mandate to Adam and Eve that they would be his creatures and that, and, and that uh, they would do his work. The, the same language in Genesis 1 and 2 that is given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and, and, and have, be stewards, have dominion over the earth and so on and, and so on, uh, and I will bless you. That same language is, is then it's given to Abraham. And Abraham is told, through you, I will 
I will raise up a great nation and I'll raise up many nations. And through you, your descendants will be as the sands on the seashore and as the stars in the heaven, you'll be unable to count them. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And God establishes a covenant with Abraham. And the whole biblical stories can, you know, if, if you'll let me do it, could sort of be summed up like this, at least the Old Testament story, that, that this gorgeous creation, a disastrous moral fall and rebellion against God. But now God's strategy of restoration through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenants are renewed. And then through the nation Israel, the, the 12 sons of Jacob become 12 tribes and, and these nations. But the, but the nation Israel is never supposed to be the, the only people of God. They are supposed to be the ones through whom God will minister to the whole world, that the word and will of God can be communicated to the whole world. But, but Israel herself fails and goes after other gods. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is, is scattered. The southern kingdom is sent into exile. But the prophets of Israel say, one day Israel will be faithful. One day I will raise up from you a king, a Messiah, an anointed one who will restore Israel. And the day will come when I will write my laws upon your heart and though you're incapable of obeying me, the day will come after Messiah comes that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young uh, people will see visions and, 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 and I, will, I will glorify my name and restore my people. For, and this is true for Jew and Gentile alike. And, and as for the end, this terrible problem of rebellion when this rebellion took place in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve were told uh, in, in 2.17, uh, of, of any tree in the garden you may eat except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And, and I remember asking my mother years ago, well, they didn't die when they ate of that. And she said, oh, yeah, they did. Uh, they didn't have clinical death at that moment, but but death is a bigger idea in Scripture than just clinical death. And it's true. Paul uses the idea of corruption and a curse, all of which is the process and cycle of death. And so now the world has been subjected to this curse. But the biblical story is that Messiah has come. Messiah is, is the one faithful Israelite, Jesus himself, in whom there was no sin, the one who did the will of God, the one who accomplishes the purposes, the one who reversed the story of Adam. The story of Adam, Paul says in Romans five twelve to the end of the chapter, in so many words, it's in verses 18 and 19, he says, through one man's disobedience, Adam, condemnation came to all. The, the whole world is wrecked under a curse. But through the obedience of the one man, Jesus uh, righteousness are, are the gift of life comes to all. So the story of Adam has now been reversed. And now, Second uh, Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 14 following, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. And so now this, this, this new thing has happened. The faithful Israelite has come. Uh, Jesus, uh, Messiah and Lord has come. He is faithful. In Philippians 2, he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He does the will of the Father. And then what does God do? When Israel is now obedient to him through the representative Messiah, when humanity through the representative new Adam is now fully obedient, what does God do? A new creation. He raises him from the dead 
and the new creation has begun. And now all of us who embrace Jesus, all of us who believe in Jesus, now we're taken into God's story. Now his story becomes our story. He died, we died with him. He's buried, we're buried with him. He's raised, we're raised with him. He's seated in the heavenlies, we're seated in the heavenlies with him. He is innocent and we receive his innocence, his vindication, his righteousness. Now we receive the gift of the Spirit, and now this new creation, the first fruits of the Spirit, begins this work within us to transform us into the likeness of Christ. We identify with Christ. We say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and we are, Romans 6, baptized with him, and, and we are buried with him in baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life, the resurrection life is now starting. And so even though we suffer, even though we're going to die, even though death, the cycle of corruption and sin and death is still finally going to overcome these bodies, the fact is, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 16, 17, 18, momentary light affliction, the sufferings of this present evil age, momentary light affliction for those who are in Christ is, present tense, is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things that are seen. The things that are seen are dying. They're provisional. They're part of the cycle of sin and death. But the things that are unseen, this new story that God has started through the resurrection of the second Adam, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is our Lord and Savior, this new creation has begun through Jesus. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is the enemy that entered in the garden The day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so, verse 15, 53, this this corruptible must put on the incorruptible. And this mortal must put on immortality at the coming of Christ. And when this corruptible has put on the incorruptible, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then will come about... The fulfillment of the scriptural saying that death, the great enemy, is swallowed up in victory. Then, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now that's God's story. Where are we in the story? The last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul now He's told the story uh, throughout this chapter. It's in several places. Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ, uh, sin, death is conquered. Now at the end from 50, 50 and following the return, it refers to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the rest of the dead, the conquering of death. And then he snaps us back to the present moment. He says to the Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What we do right now is not uh, seven steps, it's repentance. What we need right now is not so much a secular, it's not a secular therapy, we need forgiveness. And what, what must happen is the transformation of, a continuing transformation as we walk in newness of life. So the f- stages of life for us, Oh, yeah, we're like all human beings. We go through phases. You could take a picture of us when we're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and you can tell that the cycle of corruption uh, has set in upon us. We're dying. But in Christ, the, the, the new person, the new self, the new creation 
has begun. So therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Here's our work here and now. Always keeping on. When you get to be 59 and a half, draw out your IRA. Then you get to quit. You don't have to go to church anymore. You get to retire. Just travel. Don't worry about all the rest of this stuff. Well, that's the world story. But this text says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not corruptible. It's not in vain. May God make us a people who are faithful to our God through Jesus Christ all the days of our lives. Come what may in this present evil age, we love him, we serve him, and we live as the right people in the story that God is moving forward. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the mercies that we have found through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we faithfully submit our lives to your work in the world. May we do what you are doing. May we see uh, what you see. May we submit faithfully, subordinate ourselves to your will and to your purpose. Lord, we love you. We confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We confess that we are sinners. We confess that we are in need of you. And we surrender ourselves on this Sunday morning again to you. Amen.